doing? Good morning. Let's try that again. Good to see you this morning. What a great time of celebration. There is one name under heaven by which we find salvation. His name is Jesus. That's who we just worship. Can we give our team a hand for leading us? And uh, so love our team. And uh, they, they were a little fired up this morning, weren't they? They were a little fired up. I think, uh, I think it must be that there's a baby on the way for Ernesto and Vanessa, and he's getting uh, all the energy out. Oh, you didn't know that. Yeah, he's got a, a baby on the way, so they're excited, and uh, there's some energy that he's uh, got to use up before that time comes, and so what a great time celebrating the goodness and faithfulness of God. If you would, turn with me this morning to Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk chapter 1, or as we say in Hebrew, Habakkuk chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one of the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 785, Habakkuk chapter 1, page 785. If you're here without a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church. You want to make sure that every person has a copy of God's Word. God has spoken. He's revealed himself. You can know him. It's written by the eyewitnesses and prophets of old and you can read about it in uh, this Bible. And so we'd love to give that to you if you don't have one. As you turn there, a couple things I, I just want to highlight for you. Um, if you notice it, and remember last week we kicked off and talked about our Pray, Send, Go. Uh, we also uh, talked about our Lexington campus. In the seat back in front of you, there are these cards. And if you are interested in being a part of our Lexington campus, we're going to be launching on August 11th, our preview service, and then in, uh, in September 8th, we have our, our launch date to launch our Lexington campus. If you're from the Lexington area, Belleville area, and you'd like to be a part of that campus, if you would, just, just fill this card out and let us know that you're interested. Whether you're interested in serving or just attending or checking it out, fill this out for us. And by the way, maybe you're here and your plans aren't to go to Lexington, but, but you would be willing to backfill the needs that we will have here at Park. Avenue. Whenever we send a team, there are always needs here that we're going to have. And so would you fill this out if you're interested in saying, I, I want to backfill the needs uh, here at Park Avenue as we send those people out. Fill this card out. We would love to hear from you. Put those in the giving boxes. We're going to be over the next few weeks looking at and, and studying this Habakkuk series, this, this small yet power-packed book called Habakkuk. And we're pleased to offer you a great resource that can supplement this study. Uh, this is a book actually written by Crossroads founding pastor Tim Armstrong. Uh, he wrote this book after he left here and he went to the chapel in Akron, Ohio. And this is a book he did on a series on Habakkuk. It's called uh, The Message of Habakkuk, When the Circumstances Challenge the Promises of God. And it is an extremely good book. I would recommend it. Um, and uh, obviously many of you know Pastor Tim, his heart, and uh, doing amazing things for the kingdom of God. And so uh, we love for you to pick up this book. They gave us a great deal for this. These are available at the Information Center for $5. Now, I want to confess, we only got a few of these just kind of in preparation. We didn't know how many people would want those, so if we don't have them available, we will get more. And so we got a few of them, and uh, they can bring us more. And so if you're interested, this is a great supplement to what we're going to be studying. We're going to be looking at 40 minutes of information. This is a book on the topic, and so I would recommend it to you. It is a great book. I've been greatly encouraged by it. Habakkuk chapter 1. I don't know about you, but I remember the day when you could go watch a movie and not have to fear that you're going to see a spoiler alert before you get there. You remember how it used to be where whenever there was a movie that came out, you could go anywhere and search on that movie, see a few trailers, but you had no clue how the movie was actually going to end. 
You had no clue. There was nobody blogging about it online. There was nobody who had a preview screening and were able to give the answer before you ever go see it, like the current Marvel movies. I don't know if you know this. You don't even have to go see the movies. You can go online before they ever come out and, and read exactly what's going to happen. Spoiler alerts. They happen all over the place. If you're online, you see these spoiler alerts everywhere. Well, back in the day, back in the day, even your television shows kind of had cliffhangers. Do you remember how it was when a television show would come to the end of that hour and then you're left waiting and longing for what the next show was going to show you? Remember that? I mean, even simple shows like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air had cliffhangers. There were cliffhangers at the end of commercial breaks and you would be waiting and wondering what was going to happen after the commercial break. Uh, man, it was an awesome time because you were left wondering, man, I can't wait to see this movie. I remember years ago, um, I, I, I'm not a big movie goer. I've increased my movie watching because I have four sons, uh, but I'm not big on movies. But, and so I remember years ago, everybody was going to see the Lord of the Rings. Remember Lord of the Rings? And, uh, and I remember whenever everybody goes see something, I have a little bit of a rebel heart. Whenever everybody goes see something, I don't want to go see it because everybody else is seeing it. And so I remember Lord of the Rings came out, and I never saw them. And, uh, and the fourth one was about ready to come out. And everybody was like, you've got to go see this with us. You've got to go see Return of the King. It's going to be an awesome movie. It's like four hours long, but you've got to come with us. And so I, the week of the movie coming out, binge-watched all the other ones. Every night I watched a different one. And can I tell you, it was the most brilliant way to watch a movie. Why? Because by the second movie... I was on the edge of my seat wondering what was going to take place. The cliff, cliffhanger was immense. I am so thankful I did not have to wait another year to find the answer as to what was going to happen. While all these other crazy moviegoers were waiting a year to come out and watch that movie. And so I literally watched them, and then the next night went and watched the last one and saw all the end of the story. Isn't it true that life is also like that? Right, We like things resolved. We don't like cliffhangers. We don't like to be left with unanswered questions. No, we want answers. We don't like ambiguity. We want clarity. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, in the psychology world, they describe us as wired. The human mind is wired with, with an incredible adversity toward ambiguity and uncertainty. We are wired in our brains to not like unclear things. We are wired in our brains to want things answered. In fact, they've studied children, and they found from an early age, there's this yearning when uncertainty happens that a child will actually make up a story. They will spontaneously generate a possible explanation. I know this is true in my life. I remember when I was four years old, I was scared to death of McDonald's. Four years old, I was scared to death of McDonald's. Why? Because one of the first times I went into McDonald's that I could remember, this creepy-looking clown with oversized feet came up to me and gave me a balloon, and it freaked me out. And so I didn't want to go into McDonald's. Why? Because in my young mind, Ronald McDonald was real. And so I couldn't go to McDonald's. I was scared to death to go to McDonald's. And so I wouldn't go to McDonald's. Now, obviously, I began to grow. My views on Ronald McDonald hasn't changed. He's still a freaky clown. But I now can go into McDonald's, I understand a different side of the story, right? I've now been told a fuller picture that he's just a pretend character. I hope I didn't ruin that for anybody. Spoiler alert, I should have warned you. Is he's a clown. He's not real. 
but, but he's a character there in McDonald's. We begin to see the picture. That's you and I, right? We invent explanations for the circumstances of life. If we don't understand what is happening, we will invent an explanation that we believe is plausible that we can attach our lives to. So let's just define this for a moment. You look around the world that we live in, and there are all these injustices. There are all these things that are taking place, right? There's North Korea and Syria, and we wonder what in the world is going on? Where is God in the midst of this? We look at the injustices that are happening. Right now we have a team in Cambodia They're visiting orphans that we have been a part of helping rescue and supporting that are now given Christian homes. Many of those young children were were acting in, in slavery. They were bought into slavery, some of them even sexual slavery. How can that be? Or what about the fact that we are still debating whether a baby in the womb matters, whether it is a life? Here we are still debating, yes, there's been some great laws passed, and yet we're still having the conversation whether a baby in the womb is protected or not. These are injustices. We see racism still charged and high. We see brutality. You turn on YouTube and you can watch people beating up other people. You can watch kids in schools bullying other kids. There's these injustices up and down our society, and we can feel overwhelmed. We can ask and say, where is the clarity? Where is the answer? Where is the solution? But you know what? We can look globally and we can look nationally, but we can also look personally. Think about this in your life, in my life right now. There's, there's people, even in this room, there's moms that have been praying diligently for a child that has, that has walked out of the church. They've got done away with Christianity and they're, they're crying out to God saying, God, will you help the prodigal return home? That there are men who are crying out, saying, God, why? Because their wife of 23 years have walked out on them. And they're saying, God, why would she do this? There, there are wives who are praying for their husbands because they just got a report. That they have terminal cancer and they have seven months to live. And they're asking these departed questions. There's a tension in them. We see it in the young man who's being overpowered with temptation and wondering, is there ever an end to this battle that keeps happening over and over again? We see it in Families affected by tornadoes. We see it in accidents where, where even little children are killed in an accident. We see it in deaths of loved ones where we wonder, why did this happen? We all face these things. And what it leaves us, it leaves us with a tension between what we see and what we believe. There's a tension between what we see happening in the world and what we believe about God in the midst of it. And we begin to question God. We begin to wonder, is God really at work We begin to wonder, is God really in control? God, are you there? Why, God? Why do you seem so distant and detached? Why is all this taking place before your eyes and it doesn't seem that you answer? If you're breathing this morning, you probably have asked those questions, haven't you? God, why? God, what are you doing? God, where are you? Thankfully, we are in good company. All throughout the Bible, we see questions like this come up. In fact, we're going to read one of these over the next few weeks. It's a story uh, about a prophet named Habakkuk. Habakkuk asked these deep-hearted questions. In fact, Habakkuk's own name means to embrace. But not just to embrace, literally it means to wrestle. We find Habakkuk the prophet getting in the ring with God and wrestling with him, asking questions that you would not think you should ask God. We find him getting in the ring and asking difficult questions of God, asking for clarity, answers, and solutions. 
Now let me ex- describe a little of the background before we dive in. We're going to be looking at this over the next few weeks. We need to understand a little bit of the historical background because it paints a picture as to why Habakkuk feels the way he does. So bear with me for a moment, uh, a little bit of history. This, this is written in about 600 B.C. If you go back a little bit before that, we find in the world of that day uh, about three world powers. There are three empires that are ruling in the world. The first one is the empire of the world. They're Assyria. Assyria is large and in charge, but the problem is Assyria is declining. They're not as powerful as they once were. They reigned for 200-some years, and they were slowly beginning to decline. The second world power is Egypt. Egypt is kind of a historical world power because if you know where Israel is, northeast is Assyria, but all the way down to southwest, bordered by, by deserts and water, we find Egypt. And Egypt has a long time running as a world empire. They're not powerful. They're not the world empire, but they're, but they're somewhat in control of that area. And then we have a young up-and-coming empire. This young up-and-coming empire called Babylon or the Chaldeans. They are to the east of Assyria, north of Israel, and they are coming fast and furious. They are coming and they have, they have might, they have power, they have growth, and there is great fear. And so there's some, some questions happening behind the scenes about what do we do with Babylon. Now, you noticed I didn't say anything about the people of God, did I? I didn't mention Israel. I didn't mention Judah. If you remember, after Solomon was king, there was a civil war in Israel, and now there's two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Israel had already been taken captive by the Assyrians. Israel was gone, basically. Judah was still a kingdom, but it was small, and it was insignificant, and it had a run of all these evil kings. King Ammon was an evil king. They, they worshipped false idols, the idols of the Assyrians, until a young man, the son of Ammon, named Josiah. Josiah became king at eight years old. I want you to imagine that for a moment. Can you imagine an eight-year-old reigning from the White House? Now, I know there's that cute little kid on YouTube called Kid President, and he's got some great ideas. But can you imagine an eight-year-old actually being king? Pretty scary. I mean, I wouldn't trust myself to be the king. An eight-year-old. He becomes king. He's surrounded by many, many scholars and helpers, but he reigns. And I, wanna, I want you to see what the Scripture says about Josiah. In 2 Chronicles 34, it says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. No, he restored the people of Judah back to worship. He reformed them. He called them to repentance. In fact, he found a scroll in the temple as he began to read it. He felt conviction that they had moved far away from God's original intention. And he brings them back and calls them to worship once again. But there was a problem. The problem was one day, Necho II, who was Pharaoh of Egypt, writes to Josiah. By the way, I love Josiah. He was a godly king, one of the godliest kings. Uh, besides David himself, Josiah may have even been more godly. Uh, so much so that I want to name one of our boys Josiah. Uh, we have four sons. I want to name one of them Josiah. My wife is really big on figuring out what their nickname will be, and she was scared to death that he would be called Josie. And he said, no, no, she said, no, 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 we're not having a son with a nickname Josie. And, and so we didn't get the name Josiah. If you are expecting uh, Ernesto and Vanessa, you can name your son. Uh, if you have a son, Josiah. 
Um, or a daughter could be Josiah as well. It's an interesting name. But it was a godly king. So Necho II of Egypt says, Josiah, here's what's happening. We've got a meeting with Assyria up north. Now we know what was happening. Assyria and Egypt were going to come together to fight Babylon. But Necho II, the pharaoh, says, but we're going to come right through Judah. We're going to come right through Judah. Josiah responds and says, not so fast. You're not coming through Judah. Because he understood that if they came through Judah, they would wipe them out and then take all the men to fight with them. And so Josiah says, no. Necho II doesn't like it, and he says, well, we're coming anyway. And so he marches his army into the area outside of Judah called the Valley of Megiddo. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, that should make sense. In the book of Revelation, this valley is mentioned again. Remember, you ever heard the term Armageddon? Armageddon means Valley of Megiddo. It's this valley, and they do battle. So Josiah sends the army out to fight against the Egyptians. But Josiah is such a godly king that he, he hides himself as a soldier and goes fight alongside his comrades, go fight alongside his warriors. And on battle, he dies. He dies, and Judah is then taken captive. They set up a king, uh, the son of Josiah named Jehoaz. He doesn't do what is right before God's eyes. Instead, he does evil. Eventually, Assyria takes him, or Egypt takes him back to Egypt as a slave. And they set up another man named Jehoiakim. It doesn't last either. Eleven years later, Babylon will come in and take over Judah. So here's the transition. Josiah's king. He is now dead. People are returning to evil. People are restoring idol worshipers. They're worshiping like the Assyrians. And now we find Habakkuk asking some deep-hearted questions. That is the story. That is why Habakkuk is going to say what he says. Take a look with me. Habakkuk chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth, but it's perverted. Notice it says that Habakkuk receives this oracle of God. He receives this oracle. I love this, this word oracle. Literally, it's the word Massah, and it means burden. It's a burden. And notice he receives the burden. What happens here is it seems that God is giving him insight into what's happening in the culture. He's giving him eyes to see the depths of what's going on around him. He's getting to see the story, and he's burdened by it. And so he writes this burden down. Now what's interesting is this burden isn't going to be written for the people of Judah. This burden is actually going to be a dialogue he's going to have with God. All through this book, it goes back and forth between God and Habakkuk. He is going to ask God some questions. We're going to look at these three scenes, and this is scene number one, unanswered questions. We see Habakkuk asking unanswered questions. In fact, he is going to write this in a judicial language. What do I mean? Habakkuk is coming at God like a lawyer, and he is questioning God. Notice it. He says, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Notice the unanswered questions he's asking. There's two of them. The first one is, God, how long? How long is this going to go, oh God? How long? Reminds me of the kids in the backseat on the way to vacation. Are we there yet? As 
my kids started to get older, I began to answer that question with, yes, we're already there. We're already there. Every time they ask, yeah, we're already there. We're already there. Enjoy. We're on vacation. You're already there. Right? How long, God? How long is this going to last? How long is this suffering? How long is this injustice going to remain? By the way, notice, notice it's pretty eye-opening. Verse, verse 2. Oh, cr- oh, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Notice he's attesting that God is able to save, but God's not saving. God is able, but he's not. Notice verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? The second question is why. Why is this happening? God, Why? Why is this taking place? Why is destruction and violence before me continually? God, not only does it seem you're not acting, it doesn't seem like you care. It doesn't seem like you're even there. In fact, I love verse 4. Verse 4 takes this a step further. It says, so the law is paralyzed. The word in Hebrew here is the word pug. And pug literally means a coma. The law is in a coma. The, the unrighteous are outweighing the righteous. God, how can you let this happen? It doesn't seem fair. The law is paralyzed. The law doesn't make sense anymore. It is absolutely gone, and you seem to be standing afar doing nothing about this. I want you to notice the things that he saw, the things he, he sees didn't line up with what he believed. What he observed didn't line up with his beliefs, and he began to question God. You know, for many of us, when we face those unexpected things, those things that we didn't plan for, sometimes we have beliefs, right? We can all attest today, God is good, and we can even say God is good all the time, but isn't it true sometimes our feelings don't catch up to that? Isn't it true sometimes our feelings don't feel that? Like we believe that God is good, but we don't feel like he's always good? And sometimes our feelings are left feeling isolated and alone. That's Habakkuk. Habakkuk is saying, God, how long... God, why? This leads to an answer. God is gracious because God is at work and he does answer. We find his answer in verse 5. This is number 2, by the way. We find this answer, though, in an unexpected answer. We find this answer, an unanswered question, that now leads to an unexpected answer. God is going to answer, but not the way that you would expect. Take a look at verse 5 with me. It says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. Let's see that again. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Let's stop there for a moment. If you read that for the first time, I don't know about you, but how I would react is, oh yeah, yes, God, you're going to do it. Imagine being Habakkuk reading this or hearing this. Step back, look. I'm about ready to do a work that you cannot imagine. In fact, I love the word there, to wonder and be astounded. The ESV doesn't translate this well because it's actually one word, the word tama, and it literally means to be sudden, alarming, an alarming amazement, to be astonished, to be marvel. It's kind of a repeated word. Literally, it says, be amazed and amazed. Be amazed at amazement. Be utterly amazed. I read this and I imagine God like a three-ring circus master. Come one, come all, come big and small, come see what no one else could ever see, amazed and marvel. Now I'm not saying that God is a three-ring master, but sometimes I'm sure he feels that way uh, trying to take care of our lives. But as if God is saying, come and be amazed, come and see what I'm about to do, it will blow your mind. And I, I can imagine Habakkuk going, yes, God. 
revival in the land. Yes, God, restoring worship like Josiah. Yes, God, the temple will remain and we will destroy our enemies. Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt will be wiped out. Yes, God. But God continues. Take a look at what he says, verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that is not their home. This, this nation that's growing and moving. He says, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. He says, they are a law to themselves. They've made their own law. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. And notice, I love this description. All their faces face for. They don't back down. They gather captives like the sand of the sea. At kings, they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men. And then he says this, whose own might is their God. Their God is their strength. He says, I'm sending the Babylonians who are skilled in war, who are mighty and strong, who gather captives like the sand in your hand, who has might that they could claim as their God. Anybody encouraged? Can you imagine Habakkuk? I mean, and let me put this in perspective. It would be like God saying, United States of America, be amazed, marvel, I'm sending Al-Qaeda to help you. I mean, that's the point. I guess uh, even a better description, maybe uh, the Ohio State Bug Eye team struggles, and he says, I'm sending Michigan to help you. Right, that's the image here. You don't do that. Like, this doesn't make sense. This is unexpected. You can never write this. How is God using a wicked people? This was shock and awe to Habakkuk. So Habakkuk does what many of us would have done in that situation. Habakkuk responds, and he responds by calling out God's character. Take a look with me at what he says in verse 12. Habakkuk responds. It says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? My holy one, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the, more, the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, and he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. He's talking about a fisherman here. here. He says, therefore, the, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? What we find, Habakkuk comes back to God and says, God, this is an unusual part of your character. This is unusual to your character. That's point three, unusual character or uncommon character, if you will. It's unusual. It's not expected. The unexpected answer now leads to Habakkuk saying, God, this is not consistent with you. This is unusual for you. Notice what Habakkuk does. Habakkuk actually reminds God of his character. Take a look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, God? Like these people, you can't use them. I mean, notice, oh, Lord, my God. Notice the personalization of that. Oh, Lord, my God. Oh, my Holy One. Why? Because the, the Babylonians wouldn't say that. 
They wouldn't call him their God. Only, only the, Judah, the Judites would call him their God. Only Habakkuk would say, my God. Notice verse 13. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look wrong. He says, God, you can't even see wrong. How can you even look at the Babylonians? They're wicked. They're ungodly. How can you even look upon them? God, how in the world can you use unjust people to conquer semi-righteous people? How can you use worse to work in bad? How can you do this, God? This is not consistent with your character. God, you're a God of mercy and grace and justice. This doesn't make sense for you. This doesn't add up to you. You don't do this. Now, I want to pause here. As we walk through the series, we're, we're going to begin to answer some of the questions that chapter 1 rises, but, or raises. But before we do, I want to leave this with some tension to us. Because if you end chapter 1, and chapter 2 gives us Habakkuk's response, I, I want us to see that tension that Habakkuk would have felt. God, this doesn't seem like your character. This doesn't seem like your way. This doesn't seem to be the best. And I want to give you quickly four observations that we can make from chapter one. We all have unanswered questions, and God answers in unique ways. I want to talk about this over these four points. Number one, God welcomes our questions. What we gather from chapter one is that God welcomes our questions. Notice, and for the rest of this book, nowhere do we find God scorning Habakkuk for asking these departed questions. Nowhere does he scorn Habakkuk for challenging his character. What that tells me is that we can be a deeply committed person to God and yet also simultaneously ask questions of faith. We can be both deeply devoted to God and yet ask deep questions at the same time. In fact, whenever I have questions for God, I always love to go read the Psalms. You know why? A third of the Psalms are questions. A third of the Psalms are, God, why? God, how? God, what are you doing with my enemies? God, protect me. God, right? A third of the Psalms are actually questions to God. All through the Bible, the greatest characters that we find ask God deep-hearted questions, and God never scorns them. God welcomes these questions. Number two, God is already at work even when it seems that he's inactive. Notice the accusation in verses one through four. God, why do you stand afar off? Why is it that you're not paying attention? Why is this stuff happening and you're not saving? You're not doing anything. How long am I going to cry, God, until you respond? And notice verse 5 begins with one word. Look. God says, look. God is already at work even when it seems he's inactive. The problem is you and I don't have the big picture. You and I only see a portion of the picture. There are times in life where it feels as if God is not acting. But God is at work. We don't see him, but he's at work. I don't know how your home is. There are these little funny things that my wife and I are very different in. And uh, one of those is that during this time of the year, Allison loves to open all the windows. She loves to have the house all opened up. And I'm just like, turn on the AC. Let's just go ahead and turn it on. She's like, no, we've got to open the windows. I want to hear the sounds. And she just loves that. It's kind of her creativity. And so what happens is we open the windows, of course. And uh, we have this sliding glass door that goes back to our deck. And one of the pet peeves that I have is when it gets dark out that we leave that door open. My wife loves to hear the sounds outside at night. And I'm just like, well, we can't leave the, the sliding glass door open. And so what happens is we have this banter back and forth where I'll go over and shut it. She'll go over and open it. 
And then I'll say, hey, son, go shut that door, please. And, uh, and, and the reason I don't like it, I'll tell you my reasoning, is because, and by the way, this is not like an argument. We're not going to counseling over a sliding glass door, just so you know. But the reason I like it shut is because our sliding glass door, our, our uh, screen door of our sliding glass door, it has some spaces in there where, you know, a bug can get through. And I hate the idea of bugs flying in at night, right? Because they, they are attracted to the lights. And so windows are fine. We can leave the windows open. But that door, I just like it to be shut when it gets dark out. Well, the other day I'm sitting there, and it was open. And I watched a bug fly in. And this bug flew over. And where I, I was sitting, it flew over, and it landed on one of Allison's paintings. My wife is very creative. She loves to paint and make things. And there was a painting hanging in our living room. And the bug is, is beginning to crawl on this painting. And I'm watching it. And can I tell you immediately, as I've been studying for Habakkuk, I was overwhelmed with this, uh, this amazing thought. I wonder if the bug crawls over that painting and, and goes, wow, this is brown. This is really nice. And then it crawls over a little bit farther. Wow, this is green. This must be like grass. And then it crawls over to the blue and it goes, wow, this is blue. It must be the sky. All the while never seeing the big picture. And I thought, how many of us are like that bug? We, we don't grasp the big picture of what's happening. We only see the pocket of pain that we feel in the present. And we wonder, is God there? We wonder, does God have a plan? We wonder, is God coming through? And what we find is God is active even when we don't see him. No, we only have a, a small picture. We don't see the big picture, but God is active even when we don't see him. Number three, God sometimes gives unexpected answers to our prayers. Here, God could not have been expected to say, I'm sending Babylon. No one would have played that out. And for you and I, when we have those moments, those tensions that come up where we have what we see and we struggle with what we believe and we wonder what God is doing, what's interesting is our tendency is to begin to predict what God's character is going to do. We begin to predict what God's plan is going to be. We begin to write down the plan and say, God, this is what I mean when I pray. And so we pray things and we ask God to do what we expect him to do. And what happens is, in our Christian lives, is when God answers differently, we begin to believe he hasn't answered at all. So many people say, if, if God hasn't answered me, and yet he has, it's just not the way we expect it. It is an unexpected answer to our prayer. Because God isn't limited to think the way we think he ought to think. God isn't limited to our thoughts. I love Isaiah 55. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. By the way, Isaiah is writing this during the same context. Declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. He says here, in the midst of this chaos that's happening that Habakkuk's writing about, he says the thoughts that God has are so much higher, so much beyond our thoughts. Now, if I can just be raw for a moment, this is the beauty of suffering. You may say, Dave, Dave, wait a minute, you just call it beauty and suffering in the same sentence. That doesn't make sense. This is the beauty of suffering. What do I mean? Well, you know, if you've grown in your faith at all, if you study the Bible, you've read the Bible, what happens? You have, a, you have knowledge of God. You know something about God. You have some information about God. You know he's a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of justice, uh, a God that's long-suffering and patient, a God at work. Right? We know these things about God, but what happens? Eventually, you get to a point where you, you know God. You know his character. You, you know how he is. I, I know I went to Bible college and seminary. I had tons of courses on theology, the study of God. We had to, had to write the description of the characteristics of God. We know God. But what happens? God throws a curveball 
a moment of suffering, a moment of pain, a moment unexpected, a, a moment we didn't plan. God allows it. He doesn't always cause it, but He allows it in our life. He filters it through His hands, sovereign God, allowing this in our lives. Why? So that now I see God in a different light. All of a sudden, we who know God now see God even more deeply when we're walking through unknown times, when we don't know what God is doing, when we're crying out how far and how long and why, oh God. What happens? I get a fresh vision of who God is. I see Him deeper. And it only happens when we walk through suffering. We see God uniquely. That's the beauty of it. God answers prayers in unexpected ways. By the way, if you don't believe that, you only have to look as far as the cross to understand that. Is not the cross the most unexpected answer to any prayer? I mean, think about it. You and I crying out, God, bring salvation. Whoever you are, God. Now granted, the earth doesn't do that, right? We look for answers, and so we look at jobs, and we look at relationships, and we look at success, and we look at, right, if I just had this house and this car, I just get satisfied, then all of a sudden, my life will be better. But there's still an emptiness inside of us, isn't there? It's yearning for eternity, and what we want to do is cry out. We want to cry out to God. What we're, the yearning inside of us, the thirst in us is God. And God answered that cry in the most unexpected ways. Like, I don't know if, if, if I were God, I would have come to earth in all glory and been like, boom, salvation. I would have done it with trumpets. I would have ridden the white horse in. He's going to do that one day. But God comes to earth in the form of a man. He goes to a cross, and on the cross, it's not the physical brutality that makes him pain. It is a spiritual torment of our sin. Every word, every thought, every deed poured on him on the cross. Unexpected. He dies. Somehow, mystery, God dies in that moment, and, and there's this separation that takes place, and all of a sudden, he then goes into a grave where he, three days later, walks out of the grave to prove that the cross was sufficient. You want to talk about the most unexpected answer to the deepest root of our prayers? It's the cross. This is the way God works. If God worked that way to save us, how much more will he work that unexpected answer and that unexpected way in our sufferings? How much more unexpected can he be? The cross is that picture. That, that, that leads to point four, the last one, and that is a longing for clarity is a call to faith. In the end, when I go through difficulty, when I'm asking the questions, what I want is God to be clear. God, why? God, how long? I don't want ambiguity. I want clarity. And when we want clarity, there are really two possible outcomes. The first, I'll call them attitudes. The first attitude is, I'm not going to believe God's way is best, and I'm going to try to solve this on my own. I'm going to use human skill, human knowledge. I'm going to use my deductive and reductive skills, and I'm going to begin to deduce what I believe should happen to solve this problem. And so I begin to trust myself. The second attitude is I turn to God and say, God, I have no clue what you're doing. You're far beyond my ability to understand, but I'm going to trust your character in the chaos of life. There's only two attitudes. Do I trust myself or I trust God? Do I trust my way to figure this problem out or do I trust you, God? That's the only other attitude I can have. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to your eternal destiny, do you really want to trust your way? Like, I think about that in my own life. Do I want to trust my way to plan and solve and fix, to find my way into eternity? Do, you think, do I really think that's going to work? I'm not sure. I live hopeless then. I don't ever know the answer. 
Or do I turn to God and say, God, I trust in you in the midst of my suffering? Do I try to solve it on my own or do I say, God, I'm going to trust your character in the chaos of life? See, for many of us, in the moments of our difficulties, we tend to let our feelings drive our beliefs. We're going to see Habakkuk deals with the same question in chapter 2. The, the, the greater opportunity is for our faith to begin to define our feelings. For our, our trust, our belief to begin to define how we feel. That our feelings, which are very, very, very subjective, fall in line under a belief that says, God, you are consistent in your character. You will do what is unexpected, but you will do what is good. Let the truth of God transform our feelings. Let me ask you this morning, can you trust the character of God in the chaos of life? What are you walking through right now? What question are you asking? And that question comes back that may have an unexpected answer. It comes back to say, do you believe that God is of everlasting? It's funny, Habakkuk actually answered his own question in his description of God, didn't he? God, you're everlasting. You see the beginning to the end. You're not bound by our time. You're not bound by our plans. God, you're my God. You're my Holy One. You are purer than even eyes can imagine. Do you not know what you're doing is right? Of course God does. And if we believe rightly, we answer our own questions. If we understand who God is, we answer our own questions and we say, God, your character is worthy of my trust. And so in the chaos of life, my faith is set on your character. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? And as we pray, maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. You walked in today and maybe you've been searching out and I would encourage you, I'd implore you today, you can know that answer. You can place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. He can rescue, wake up, wake you up and open your eyes to the truth of who he is and he can save you today. He has that power. He died on a cross, walked out of a grave, was seen by 500 people. They wrote it down for us. Those men who saw him were willing to die for it. You can trust that he died for you and rose again for you. The day you can trust him by faith. We have some people in next steps that love to talk with you. Maybe you're here and you're asking, God, why? God, how long? God, why is this going on? And why is that going on? And this is a moment where faith rises. The longing for clarity is a call to faith that we can trust the character of God in the chaos of life. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to end with this song that he's a way maker. And we don't see he's a way maker. We don't understand he's a way maker. We can trust him. Would you bow with me? God, we thank you. We thank you for how good you are, how faithful you are. God, even when we don't see and even when we don't understand, your word says that you who began a good work is faithful to complete it. God, your word says that we can trust in you, that our hope can be set in you. Why? Because you predestined us to be conformed to the image of your son, meaning that we can trust whatever path we're on, you're going to make us more like Jesus Christ. And so God, while we don't have the spoiler alert of today, we know the end of the story. God, we know how this ends. And we know that you will reign supreme as king, and so we can trust you. We look around the national scheme, the scene. We look around the global scene, and we wonder, God, what are you doing? Where are you at, God? Why is there injustice that's reigning? God, you are at work. We don't see it, but we have to believe it. And that one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you, Jesus Christ, is Lord of the glory of you, the Father. You're a way maker. Be that way maker in our lives today. All for your name. All for your glory, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing this song to him.